The following episode of Ottoman History Podcast is part of an ongoing series on the history of gender in the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series, as well as many other series available for streaming or download through iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. Of course, each week uh, on our show, we choose a theme and bring to you Ottoman and sometimes not quite Ottoman histories to explore that theme. Today's theme, space and sex in French Algeria. To discuss colonialism at the most intimate level, our guest is Dr. Aurélie Perrier, who recently completed her PhD at Georgetown University. Aurélie, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to begin, what was sex like before the French came to Algeria? Uh, that's a very good question and a hard one to answer because uh, in many ways, um, the sexual landscape of pre-colonial Algeria was variegated and diverse. So there are multiple practices that um, were going on. So in my work, I focus mostly on um, illicit sexuality. I'm, so I can't speak about um, sex uh, within the bounds of marriage because I haven't researched that. And um, there's not uh, that much that I've looked uh, on that topic. But um, So I'll be talking mostly about illicit sexuality. Um, it's a fun topic also. So in pre-colonial Algeria, there are, um, you know, several outlets uh, for men looking to fulfill um, their sexual desires outside marriage. Uh, one of them was concubinage, and that's true of all uh, Muslim societies. Men were allowed to have concubines uh, within certain uh, rules. Um, so they had to purchase the concubine themselves. For example, they were not entitled to sexual um, uh, to the sexual enjoyment of uh, slaves that belong to their wives, for instance. Um, so that's also true in sexual Algeria. And um, it was actually quite prevalent because of the movement of populations uh, in Algeria, mostly uh, from, you know, the south, the desert to the, the uh, plateaus um, in the Tell. Uh, so there were movements of populations. And what are people moving to do? Uh, I mean, it's it's linked to uh, the economy. The, the, these are semi-nomadic populations. Um, so sometimes, um, you know, in, in um, the southern months in the south, they go to uh, to the north to escape uh, the heat and to find a means of, of livelihood um, and, and uh, vice versa, uh, you know, the herding of... Um, of animals also uh, brings about the movement of, of populations. Um, so you have uh, semi-annual movements of, of uh, population flows, uh, you know, in the summer months and in the winter months. Uh, you, ha- you have large, you know, amounts of people who are, who are traveling, and these are mostly men. A woman uh, typically would stay in the home community, and the men would migrate for work or, um, you know, to, uh, for herding um, their animals, um, um, so, I mean, that we have to understand that in order to uh, understand, you know, the economy of sex that was put in place in pre-colonial Algeria. Uh, one of the main concerns uh, was um, how can we, you know, provide sexual outlets to these men and at the same time uh, be faithful to sort of the Islamic norms. And, uh, and sorry, so this concern is for the 
authorities in the cities or uh the communities also i mean okay. because you know most people were muslim you also did have uh, you know a jewish population uh, but you know there's also a, a concern for um you know sexual you know um a form of of modesty and uh for con- constraining uh you know what's uh, permissible to do outside marriage and not um so i mean it it's linked to religious observance and um you know a, a desire to control um the social order as well um so that that's something that you see emerging certainly out of the elites but also of of the communities Um so I've looked at the colonial period uh, which gives us a sense of how um certain leaders um or members of the community were involved in regulating um sexuality and you know in the cities you know that infrastructure was uh, a, a lot more um solid um you had for example an Ottoman official uh who was called the Mezwar and uh his job was to regulate illicit sexuality so um he was an official of the Ottoman state um the position was farmed out every year and uh he would levy a tax on um public women um and you know make sure that uh they practiced uh, outside of the public eye and so you know it was definitely something that the state partially part token. Sorry, can I interject? I had sure. a question about the mezwar. Um so are th- are these public women are they different than the concubinage relationships that uh, you described earlier? Uh yes, because the concubine typically lives in the household right. and is a slave, you know, owned by uh the the head of the of the family. Uh, so she's integrated into the household and and in many regards she's part of the family. Um whereas these um public women um you know are basically um I mean there there's a range of of women and practices so it's is very hard to characterize sure. in a unitary fashion but some of them are entertainers and that gives them an ambiguous status uh because they're both accepted by the community as people who provide legitimate entertainment sometimes for religious occasions so family weddings for example you would have performers and singers uh but they might uh perform religious songs so it's not a purely transgressive mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. on the other hand um some of these women were performing for mixed audiences or for male audiences and that is in a sense a transgression of you know the accepted um social code and gen- of the gender rules um um so they had a a a sort of ambiguous um status um right so there's kind of this overlap between religious and and the sexual in in ways that you know we might not see in the late 19th century yeah that and that's very much what i tried to underline um in my work is the way a colonial modernity uh brings with it um certain categories um that didn't apply uh in the pre-colonial era and uh they just wasn't the same stigma attached to these women and uh the way that we know that is that it was very common for them to slip in and out mm-hmm. of um you know their 
um, their livelihood. So whether it was entertainment or a little bit later on with the French uh, prostitution, um, sure. we know that many prostitutes married and had no trouble finding husbands, uh, which was something that flabbergasted uh, the French. They right. just couldn't make sense of of that. So I, I want to talk more about what changed in the French period, but uh, also I wanted to ask about uh, more about the specifics of public women under Ottoman rule. Are they operating out of brothels? Uh, you mentioned how some of them are entertainers, so that they're they're going into these different spaces as well. But what does it look like on the ground? No, I mean, brothels are really a French import. And that's part of the job of the mezoir is to make sure they are no brothels because they're supposed to operate strictly within the confines of private space. Uh, we do know that in the colonial period, some of these uh, female entertainers operated in coffee shops. Uh, that might have happened also in the pre-colonial um, era. Uh, so they were select spaces, but it was never, um, you know, uh, an act of uh, sexual transgression. It was just entertainment. And then, um, you know, if sexual liaisons occurred um, after that, then it would be in the private apartment of uh, a courtesan. Uh, so brothels did not exist in the Ottoman uh, period, and that is definitely a, a French um, import. So let's talk now about what happens when the French come. What kinds of things do they import? Uh, so the first thing they do is they um, put in place um, a bargain with, um, uh, they, they, they forge a deal with the, the existing mezoir in Algiers um, and, um, you know, ask him to notify them of all the women who are on his, his list that he's levying a tax from so that they can control uh, these women. Um, and then very quickly, they also uh, put in place medical uh, regulations. Um, there's a strict system of policing of these women, what they're allowed to do, where they're allowed to go, um, and at what time, who they're allowed to interact with in the street. Um, all of that falls under, um, you know, the a legal code uh, that the French uh, pass in July of 1830. So just... Um, you know, uh, barely a couple of, of weeks after uh, they arrive in in, uh, in Algiers. Um, and this is going to apply to all of, of Algeria. I mean, it starts in Algiers, but as they, they um, uh, conquer other spaces, um, the legislation is obviously made to apply everywhere. Um, so, yeah, basically, um, they continually update um, um, you know, the, the regulation uh, detailing what these women are allowed to do, and they create special spaces for prostitution. That's the other very important point. Uh, they create brothels. Um, so as I said, that's, that's uh, really a novel, uh, uh, a novel import. Um, and they try and separate these women from the rest of, you know, the, the so-called respectable uh, Muslim or European uh, women, um, and 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 again, that's that's something that will lead to the marginalization of the uh, female entertainers because before they could move in and out of these spaces, and they were not considered to be, you know, different from other respectable women. It was just they had to, you know, then play by the rules if they decided to marry and fall under the authority of their of their husbands, abide by Islamic law. Um, and that was all well and good. Um, what the French tried to do is really set them apart and, it, and makes it very difficult for these women to reintegrate 
um, society. And so what do we know about who these women are? Are, are these mostly women from Algeria? Um, are there European women who are in these public houses? So uh, initially, in the first years and perhaps even a decade or two, um, most uh, female prostitutes that are registered and controlled by the French state are uh, Algerian for the simple reason that there are very few European women um, in Algeria in, in the initial decades when conquest is still ongoing. But very quickly, this trend will will reverse uh, by, I think, uh, uh, I think it's 1842 or thereabouts, um, you know, the balance starts to tilt and then you have, you know, just as many European women and quickly after that, uh, more European women uh, than, um, than Algerian or um, indigenous, uh, indigenous women. Um, so it, it's interesting to look at this shift and the question that arises is, is why and is that reflective of, you know, the state's intent? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to a certain extent, it's a hard question to answer for, for several reasons. One of them is that many women practice prostitution and were not registered sure. by the state. Um, and that's something maybe we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Um so, you know, what, what state records tell us might not be reflective of the entire uh, reality. Um, and the second is that, you know, um, we can, you know, see what the end result was, who ended up being registered, but it's, it's hard exact to trace it back exactly to a, a distinct political will. But we do know from uh, the writings of colonial doctors and uh, certain records um, in the archives uh, that they was concerned over um, the, the race uh, and ethnicity of prostitutes and the idea of racial mixing. So, I mean, it does seem like there was some deliberate intent to import um, European women for the sole purpose of sexually servicing uh, French soldiers and uh, colonists. Right, because they don't want the problem of, of interracial sex and, and its product. Does, does that emerge at all at this time as, as an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things. Early on, it's just um, the very basic need of sexually servicing mostly the the army. I mean, right. you have to remember that, you know, I think it's in 1847, there's something like 100,000 uh, men in the Armée d'Afrique. So that's a large contingent of single men that you have to, you know, provide sexual access to. Um, so prostitution is initially put in place uh, for them. Um, and then, of course, there are all sorts of related concerns about the health of the colonial army and fears of racial degeneration that, you know, were present even uh, before, um, you know, colonial expansion into uh, Algeria. The, this notion that the French race was uh, in, in a crisis and was degenerating was, was very present and had been fueled by... Uh, the, you know, uh, Napoleonic defeats, um, you know, which had, you know, thrust um, Frenchmen into a, a sense of crisis. So, I mean, definitely that's, that's something that is motivating, uh, you know, early French officials. This is desire to maintain the purity of the race, that is, not to mix with indigenous women, um, because that would, you know, give rise to offspring um, and where 
I mean, what category would we place them in? Would they be, you know, colonizers or colonized? Sure. I mean, it just uh, opens up a whole um, set of questions. Um, so th they're definitely concerned about not racially mixing. But the other thing is they want healthy women because venereal disease um, is, is huge at the time uh, and is definitely... Uh, you know, um, uh, fueling these these fears of, of degeneration. Um, so prostitutes are, European women are, are also thought to be uh, healthier and easier to control than um, indigenous women. So that's another reason potentially driving, you know, the Frenchmen to want to try and encourage uh, European women to, um, to serve as prostitutes. Um, so you mentioned earlier that m migration is something that drove the development of uh, illicit sexual work uh, in the pre-French period. And we just talked about how there's a sort of migration going on in terms of French soldiers, all these single men, well, some of them not single, but acting acting like they are, I guess. What happens w when the French come to Algeria? Um, how, how does that affect the the flows of people from the south that... that you mentioned drive drive um, this sort of work. Um, I mean, the French are definitely going to try and um, stop the nomadic practices mm -hmm. of you know Algerians for the simple reason that it's a lot easier to govern and control populations uh, that are not on the move. Um, so they're definitely going to encourage that uh, with the Senatus Consults of uh, 1863 and 1865. They try and divide property um, so that, um, you know, it just, uh, you know, doesn't make sense to, to have this sort of economy upon which, mm -hmm. you know, Algerian uh, you know, population survived. Um, so um, they're they're definitely trying to control these population flows, um, but they inevitably, you know, um, continue their um, movements actually in multiple uh, directions. Um, there are also some Algerians who um, uh, move to Tunisia as um, sort of a way to uh, pro protest. Um, you know, French domination. They want to uh, live in Dar al-Islam. And so some of them move to um, to Tunisia or other parts of, of, of the Maghreb, Morocco, or even uh, Syria and elsewhere um, in, in the Muslim world. Um, so that's part of the migratory flows um, that we see. So out uh, from Algeria, out, uh, but also their, um, you know, pre-colonial links between Tunis and uh, Algeria, which Professor Clancy Smith has, has detailed in her books. And, and those continue in the colonial era. So you have people from elsewhere also coming into Algeria. Um, um, I mean, we have to remember that, I guess, national frontiers were um, not uh, solidified at that time. Um, and the whole geography and political economy of these communities was not built around being both sedentary or around uh, fixed uh, national uh, borders. And in fact, the in fact, uh, French conquest of Algeria uh, continues, uh, you know, even until the the twentieth century, if we count um, the Deep South. Um, so again, uh, the territory that the French controlled was constantly uh, shifting as well. You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, 
visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. I want to go back to another point that you made earlier about how the French rely on the mezoir to figure out who who the prostitutes in the city are. To what extent do we see local intermediaries playing a role in these new measures that the French are putting in place? Um, that's a good a good question, um, and there's somewhat contradictory evidence. Um, we do have a few. Um, popular uh, folk traditions um, that were put down in writing and that are available to us and give us a glimpse of what the mentality of, you know, the average um, Muslim uh, Algerian, um, you know, might, might have thought about this question. And there's definitely a condemnation of the practice of prostitution and of the prevalence of, of brothels. Um, so on the one hand, it does seem like certain segments of the population was were disheartened uh, by how prevalent um, it was, um, uh, because that's another point I, I should mention. There were maybe about like 500 or 600 women who were registered on, uh, you know, French records um, uh, as prostitutes uh, in Algiers throughout the colonial era. These numbers hardly ever shift. But the whole discourse around prostitution makes it obvious that a lot more women were involved in in these practices, maybe in informal ways and uh, maybe not full time. Um, uh, so, um, you know, the state definitely doesn't control every every aspect of it. So, so s- some segments of the population are definitely not happy with just the rapid spread and growth of prostitution and the visibility of, of brothels. On the other hand, there is evidence uh, that the mezoir uh, cooperated with the French and that other um, Muslim dignitaries, um, uh, Qadis uh, notably, um, also um, uh, collaborated with uh, with the French in, in those matters. Uh, for instance, for the city of Constantine, we have records that show that uh, the Qadis uh, themselves were responsible for putting women on on the on the list uh, so they could forcibly register a woman as a prostitute and uh, conversely if a woman asked to um, uh, be deleted from the list because she um, was going to uh, marry the the qadi was also the one uh, to decide and to uh, notify the french um, so again um you know, there definitely appears to have been some collaboration. Um, so the question, I guess, is what was driving them to collaborate? Um, and um, to some to some extent, the very same, um, you know, motives that were driving the French were also driving the, the, the Muslim elites. Uh, they were concerned about uh, interracial uh, mixing uh, for religious region, reasons. I mean, there's a, a, a clear... Um, uh, prohibition against, uh, you know, Muslim women having sex with non-Muslim men. Um, so they were concerned with enforcing that, uh, and in a way, controlling, you know, the practice of prostitutes seemed like a good way to um, uh, to limit the number of women who would um, be involved in sort of these interracial, interreligious uh, relationships. Um, 
The other thing is there's um, a, a document by a historian, uh, Ibn Abil Diaf, a Tunisian um, historian, um, and who writes about the, the question of um, prostitution. And he um, uses a, a, a concept, which is the concept of sitr, or concealment. Um, and it, that probably also did influence, um, you know, Algerian uh, Muslims in, in their own uh, thinking about the question. Um, in other words, the idea was that it's better for the morality of the community to, you know, tolerate prostitution, but within designated quarters, uh, so that, you know, we can sort of spare the rest of, uh, of the community. And the idea was that these quarters were supposed to be Uh, far away from the places of worship, um, so there would be no contamination. And we can think of that um, sort of special, uh, spatial uh, ghettoization of immoral or illicit sexuality as a form of, of sitra or concealment of the practice. I mean, it was sort of a, a, um, a place, um, you know, that you were not supposed to trespass if you wanted to remain uh, pure. Um, and... Um, It also bears mentioning that in the pre-colonial era, um, I've talked about the population flows uh, of single men that required uh, the management of, you know, male uh, sexual desire through forms of female entertainment and and uh, prostitution. Um, and uh, these women in pre-colonial Algeria uh, were, you know, obviously existing uh, in the community, but a lot of the times they would uh, live um, in, in buildings or in tents that were placed outside the Muslim city walls. So there, were, there was the same sense of spatial segregation, uh, even though where they lived was not a brothel in the sense that we think about it today. It was just their, their private quarters. Uh, but there was this same sense of wanting to uh, just isolate them from the rest of, of um, the community of, of believers. And so it could intersect in some ways with this French policy of, of putting them all in one place. Exactly. So yes, this, is, this policy of creating brothels and also quartier uh, réservé, so reserved quarters, Uh, where you had a series of, of brothels in a select street, uh, definitely fits into this, this desire of, you know, uh, wanting to uh, manage and um, control and channel, you know, um, the spaces in which um, illicit sexuality occurs, but not banning it altogether. Probably difficult to make a general statement about this, but it struck me as, as you were talking that there are so many, it sounds like there are so many more people involved in regulating prostitution. You have these Muslim elites, you have uh, the, the French, obviously. Is it fair to say that women engaged in illicit sex work have less control over their bodies and their occupations uh, once the French are there than before? Yes, I think definitely so. Those that do end up being registered and who live in, in brothels are much more constrained. Uh, so while the Mezwar had a certain amount of power over these women, and for one, he could decide who was on his list and who wasn't, so who he was uh, levying a tax from and, and uh, you know who wasn't, um, he also could, had the power to uh, put a prostitute um, to death, uh, to execute her, if it was uh, proven that she had engaged in sex with, with a non-Muslim. Um, so um, he could also um, quarantine her if 
you know, there was evidence that she was unhealthy and carried a venereal disease. Um, but beyond that, he really didn't have any power to, you know, uh, go to their private quarters and, um, you know, regulate their movement, uh, at what hour they could circulate where. And in many respects, you know, during the day, um, they, they, they just was no way to distinguish these women from, from, from the rest of, of the women. When, when the French come in, um, the policy of uh, spatial segregation that we've talked about, of quartier réservé, um, definitely tries to set them apart uh, spatially and to confine them to these quarters um, in a way that, that's very uh, novel. So there's an accentuation of these policies. Um, so there's definitely um, the intent to uh, limit their uh, freedom of movement. Uh, there are also curfews that apply to these women. They're not allowed to uh, circulate in uh, the city beyond um, a, a specific hour. Uh, they also have to attend regular medical visits and they have to pay uh, for the medical uh, visit, right? It's not a free, a free service. Um, and if they're found to be sick, then they need to pay for their care in, uh, in the hospital. Um, in the dispensary. Um, so, um, I mean, it, it, there are definitely a, a much stricter set of rules that are put in place once uh, the French come in. And, and as I've already mentioned, it's also much harder uh, to be erased from from the, the, the register that the French have. So once you're a prostitute, it's, it's, it's very hard to move out of, of the profession because of the rigid system of, of control. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the police is, is, um, has a special branch, la police des mœurs, um, in charge of, you know, policing these, uh, these women. And, and they really um, keep a close eye on them. And so the hospital, far from being a benevolent institution, becomes another way of government in increasing its authority over people's lives and bodies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he becomes a, a form of penitentiary. And in fact, uh, um, Algerian prostitutes uh, spoke to, spoke of it in terms of a penitentiary um, institution. Um, because, I mean, they, and they had to pay for it, which is really the, the irony of it. Uh, not only were they, you know, confined uh, there, um, they, they also, you know, couldn't, couldn't decide to leave uh, when they wanted to and had to pay for it. So it seems like in so many ways, um, in terms of these spatial practices, there's an attempt to impose boundaries on people's lives. And of course, that's crucial to most colonial enterprises, maintaining divisions between colonizer and colonized. But how, in, in your research, have you seen these boundaries getting blurred and unintended consequences of, of these you know, efforts at simplifying complexity? I mean, the first thing is the French really do struggle with... Uh, which women um, to define as prostitutes, because in their eyes, um, every um, Muslim woman behaves like a prostitute because, of course, uh, they describe, uh, you know, Al Algerian um, sexual life as dissolute um, and uh, the facility and ease with which um, both women and men can move into marriage and out of marriage to them uh, makes, you know, um, uh, marriage just uh, very similar to prostitution, especially in light of the fact that um, men uh, would uh, pay a, a sadaq uh, to, uh, to, uh, to their, their bride. So to them, it's uh, 
pretty much the same thing as uh, you know buying your your wife. Right. Um, so that's definitely something you see in the colonial discourse. Uh, this idea that every Muslim woman is a prostitute in hiding, uh, and therefore the whole efficiency of the system, you know, depends on the ability to separate um, sort of the the corrupt woman from the so-called respectable woman. But at the same time, they're constantly, you know. Um, uh, face to to recognize that you know we we don't know um, how to distinguish between them um, so that that's definitely something that's very uh, very visible in in the archives there is a really vivid part of your dissertation where you talked about how uh, y- you'll have to fill in the details but the story where um, broth- brothels were located in one part of the city and it happened to be close by uh, the government offices so people were waiting to be uh, you know, to to handle their affairs in this government office right next to a brothel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was in um, Philippeville or Skikda. That's right. Um, uh, there was this whole debate about where to place uh, the, the brothel, right? Um, uh, so, of course, the French wanted it to be far from, you know, where the, uh, where, you know, the, the white uh, city, um, where the whites lived and had their houses and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, in this particular case, it happened to be placed right next to the Bureau Arabe. So that's where, you know, uh, Algerians could, could um, go to voice any complaints they had to, to French authorities. And so, you know, regularly, you, every day you had, uh, you know, 10, 15 or 20 men waiting outside to, to speak with the French officer. And they were just leaning on, on you know, their nearby brothel. So that um, really uh, created a problem. And eventually they, they moved the brothel to a, a different section because the proximity of the symbols of you know, um, um, France uh, to, um, you know, um, this place of debauchery uh, really threatened uh, the prestige and legitimacy of uh, the colonial power. Another interesting thing that came up in your dissertation was that you make the claim that it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that the state becomes a pimp in the 19th century. And in light of that story, especially, it seems like there's such a clear connection between the regulation of sexuality and and the state yeah and that's something i found in in a case i think it's later in the 1930s but uh, some of the people characterize the state as or uh, rather police officers as policier marlou so sort of pimp policemen um and um you know laying bare their complicity in the organization of what uh, they label themselves as debauchery um but again in in the context of the time prostitution um, uh, you know, is really viewed as um, the only means to um, ensure sort of the purity of soul and uh, of you know the larger um, section of the of the population. It's it's the same idea with with the sewers that basically you have to separate uh, the waters that are you know unclean from you know the the water that's drinkable and and pure and uh, it, you see very much the same discourse with prostitutes and uh, in fact one of the most influential thinkers uh, on uh, prostitution of the time, Parent du Châtelet, had, uh, before his really seminal uh, study on prostitution, uh, written um, um, uh, a study of uh, Parisian sewers. So again, the linkages are, are very, very clear in this way of, of thinking. So it's something that is one, at once condemned uh, 
And at the same time, that's viewed as a necessary evil and a lesser evil, because otherwise the whole of society would be corrupt and um, disorderly. It's really an amazing connection between people who are making policy in Algeria and, and Parisian sewers. Do you have a sense of how policies in Algeria relate to what's going on in the metropole? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, uh, definitely the, the work of Parent du Châtelet, so again, who worked on uh, prostitutes uh, in Paris, is uh, known uh, by, you know, colonial doctors in Algeria. Um, this one author in particular, Duchesne, uh, makes explicit references. Sometimes it seems like there are even a sentence or two that are directly copied over from his, his work. But uh, uh, the... Um, the circuit of ideas uh, between France and Algeria is it's just very clear just in the formulations that are used. Um, it's, it's almost identical. Um, what is interesting and distinct perhaps about the Algerian uh, context is the issue of uh, race uh, that we've talked about. Uh, the, um, the desire to maintain the purity of the race and, um, you know, um, limit interracial uh, mixing. So that really um, sort of creates a, a context for thinking about spatial segregation in a way that's perhaps even more extreme than in the case of, of Paris, even though you have some of the same concerns about separating, you know, respectable women and, and dishonest women. But um, it seems to me the colonial context uh, really provides a space for people to think, explore, and test out these ideas, you know, that are simultaneously going on in, in, in France. It's so not like one happens. Laboratory. Right. It's, it's not like, um, you know, it happens first in Algeria and then it's imported in Algeria. It's, it's sort of a, a conversation uh, and a back and, and forth, I think, that's a little bit more complicated. So the ideas are moving just like the people. Exactly. Yes. So a lot of stories about the world in the 19th century talk about how the state is gaining more control over people's lives. Do you feel like that's the story you're telling? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, I can't escape that story. Um, although I also try and tell the other side of the story, which is um, to show the creativity deployed by individuals, whether they're in fact European or uh, indigenous uh, in trying to evade the control of 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 the state, uh, but undeniably, when we're talking about registered prostitutes, um, if you compare the control that the mezoir had over these women versus uh, uh, the means available to the state and the laws that are passed in the French era to control these women, I mean. Um, you can't escape the conclusion uh, that there is, you know, greater encroachment into the private lives of, of these women. Um, but I think it's equally important also to focus on um, how many more women actually manage to escape, um, you know, being on the state registry and, um, you know, practice informally um and they probably didn't even think of their lives necessarily as you know they probably didn't recognize themselves in in the categories that the state uh, used to talk about them um much less 21st century academics right, right? yeah exactly <laughs> but i think this this question of you mentioned creativity that people deployed to evade the gaze of the state uh it gets really tricky to to find those stories when when we're so beholden to the state for our records. How how did you find ways to get around that? 
Uh, well, one of the archives I looked at uh, were um, the um, uh, Cour d'Assises de Constantine, so the, the criminal court record uh, for uh, the department of Constantine. And they're a very rich source to explore sort of individual life stories, um, sexual scandals. I, I looked particularly at those criminal cases that had to do with sexual abuse, um, usually of, of children. Um, and um, just also about to understand the life of the neighborhood and of communities, because in a single case, you have, of course, the, the victim uh, that testifies, but you also have, you know, neighbors and parents and so on. And so you can sort of see the interactions uh, among individuals and then of the individuals with, with the state um, as well. So that, that was, for me, a really, a really rich, rich source to, um, to explore. Um, and what I found is that um, a lot of the European settlers who, in theory, were supposed to behave according to the the uh, moral norms uh, defining white prestige, right? So essentially sort of very Victorian values, um, you know, marriage and family and so on. Um, we're really uh, living in um, uh, abject poverty at times. I mean, there uh, there's this case, for example, of a... a a European girl, she was of Maltese origin, uh, who um, was abused um, by a man. And um, uh, it's very interesting because we find out that she lives, for example, in the indigenous quarter. So she's Maltese, so technically European, but she lived, um, you know, in the midst of, of Arabs and spoke Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, so there, these um, sorts of stories give you insight about how blurry the boundaries were between ruler uh, and ruled. And um, when you look at um, sort of the um, the codes, you know, regulating their their lives, um, certainly in terms of sexual morality, um, uh, you know, they they it wasn't it wasn't clear who was and who wasn't you know, a, a uh, living a dissolute um, existence. So as much as the state tried to implement sort of rigid boundaries, in reality, uh, looking at, you know, sort of sexual scandals, I mean, obviously that's a, um, I mean, it's a place where you're bound to look at, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. So you can't generalize based on just, uh, you know, these, these, these cases. But since you do get to hear the neighbors and their comments on what was going on. It's, it's really uh, interesting. And you get a sense of how normal that was too. Um, you know, the many cases of children didn't decide to, um, to talk about it. And um, it only came um, to, to view when, you know, one of them contracted a venereal disease as a result of the, uh, of the rape, for, for instance. Uh, but other than that, a lot of them said, oh, I just told my friend about it and they seem to move on and not want to tell their parents and just the comments of the of the parents and the neighbors and their their reactions also very, very telling. And in one case, um, after their 13 daughter, a uh, 13 year old daughter is is raped. Um, uh, these um, French parents decide uh, that they're going to marry their girl to um you know, um, uh, someone in the community who's a lot older, uh, but she's under the legal aid, uh, age for, for marriage. Uh, but it, 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 what, what was the legal age? Uh, 15 was a legal okay. age uh, for a woman at that time. Um, uh, so this is in, in the late 19th century, in the 1890s, and it's taking place in, in uh, Batna. 
um, in the East. Um, but it's it's very interesting to see their response to the rape of their daughter. They, there's still this notion that, oh, okay, well, we don't want her running free all day because, I mean, both the parents work outside the home. And so part of the reason is they can't supervise her, uh, which, you know, is part of the reason, um, uh, you know, why... Um, uh, something, you know, allegedly bad happened to her. Uh, certainly that's what the state uh, tries to insinuate. Um, and given that they can't supervise her, uh, they decide, well, we'll just marry her. She'll be under the, the supervision of, of a husband. Um, unfortunately, the, the state later finds out and uh, the parents are tried for complicity in um, prostituting their, their daughter because in their eyes, she's illegal. So um, a, a minor, you know, um, you know, sharing a bed with a man who's not her husband is at that time, you know, bears too much resemblance to prostitution. And so does this become a part of the way the French are talking about uh, parents and their impacts on their the lives of their children as well? Yeah, um, that's an interesting point you make. I mean, it's definitely something I noticed. So I, I looked at these court records over time. Um, so, you know, from the 1850s to, you know, basically the early 1900s. And what I've noticed is that with time, the cases become increasingly detailed. Um, there are just a lot more testimonies uh, of, of uh, you know, various people um, that are brought to, to court. Um, and um, it's just um, so the, the, the discourse becomes more abundant around, you know, the, the sexual abuse of, of these children. Um, and it does appear, um, you can hear sort of implicitly in the, the narrative of, of the state, a, a critique of the way parents are educating their, their children. And um, that sort of makes sense with what we know about, um, you know, the history of parenting in, in Europe and, uh, you know, sort of the bourgeois family norms becoming more, more prevalent and uh, therefore, um, you know, being a father or a mother um, taking on very different connotations. Um, so, so there is this sense um, uh, that, you know, parents are um, tacitly um, sort of accused of, of whatever happens to, to their children and the lack of morality of, of their children. Um, and so there's, there's an attempt to, to um, discipline both, uh, you know, the, the, the children who misbehaved and had premarital sex. In some cases they were abused, but in other times uh, there were, you know, sort of um, consenting, uh, consenting uh, parties. Um, and so uh, there you see this uh, desire to discipline the victim, but also uh, the parents. Uh, and that's, that's very interesting. Okay, so we've talked a lot about uh, movements of people and ideas in the 19th century. Uh, do you have a sense of how these technologies, these practices persist into the 20th century and the relationship between France and Algeria? Um, I mean, I guess there are two things I would say. In, in 1946, when France, uh, the metropole, bans uh, prostitution, uh, it's it's banned only um, on, on the mainland and not in Algeria. So again, that's, that's a very interesting um, point to, to think about, you know, uh, the contradictions between, you know, the metropole and, and the colony and how um, the empire allowed France to negotiate uh, sort of uh, uh, inherent uh, contra contradictions. Um, and, and the um, argument that's invoked is, again, uh, that, um, you know, um, Algerians are 
uh, immoral and prone to uh, sexual uh, um, behavior that is scandalous and so that you need to have these rules in place and also ensure the you know the purity of the two communities in a way that's much less necessary um, in the metropole um, so I guess that's that's one interesting point to contemplate um, is to see that not the same laws were applied in France um, um, at least when it was banned in 1946 as in Algeria and then the second thing is that um, this notion of uh, preserving the purity of the race and the nation is going to be picked up and appropriated by Algerian nationalists in, in the, uh, the um, uh, liberation struggle that uh, begins in uh, the 50s and extends into the 60s. And they are going to um, ban prostitution, um, the FLN, that is. Um, they also organized um, marriages between uh, you know, FLN activists. So they would marry uh, women, um, you know, who were, who were active in the organization to um, to uh, FLN members um, in an attempt also to just avoid, um, um, you know, prostitution and uh, any um, sexual licentious uh, behavior. So you definitely see the, the appropriation of, of this idea um, and, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that comes to define uh, the Algerian national uh, community in, in, in later um, discourses as well um, in independence. Um, but that's, that's for another study. Definitely. So these questions are still so obviously with us today, especially in the past month or two, as there have been conversations, uh, whether acknowledged or not, about France and its colonial past. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Ochdi. Thank you for having me. Um, of course, we'll have a reading list on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.